Well, uh, good morning, everyone. Let me um, add my welcome to Stephen's from earlier. Thank you, Jimmy, for leading us in prayer there, and Stephen as well for leading us through so helpfully to this point. If you've got a Bible, um, do open it back up to Colossians uh, chapter 2, where we're up to. We've been working through this book, and we're hoping over the rest of the, the summer months as well to the end of August to to work our way right through to the end of Colossians. So um, we've reached that section there, Colossians chapter 2, verse uh, 16. Uh, but before we um, get into that, uh, I want to start with a couple questions uh, for us uh, this morning that I think are going to be central to uh, what we're going to think about as we do go through that passage. Uh, the first question I've got for you this morning is, where do you look to for assurance of your salvation? And then the second question is, what are you trying to do to grow and mature as a Christian, if you are a Christian here this morning? They're two pretty, pretty big questions, I think, and we're not going to find many bigger. See, knowing and enjoying the assurance of salvation is essential to living the Christian life, isn't it? It's the thing that gives us peace and rest and hope in the day-to-day. And also, that question of how to grow as a Christian is so important, isn't it? We are, we are never commanded as Christians, or never called to be standing still in our faith. We're never just going to end up accidentally living increasingly in a manner worthy of the Lord, just by chance doing that. No, we're going to have to purposefully live like that, purposefully go about doing that. So, so I guess the question is, how do we do it? And in today's passage, I think both of those questions are in view. How can we be sure of our salvation, and how can we grow as Christians? But in this passage today, in a slight twist, we're going to see how we shouldn't answer these questions, first and foremost. As we see false or destructive paths that we could choose to go down, that we might be tempted to go down in seeking assurance as Christians or as growing, in growing And as we see these false turnings that the false teachers in and around Colossae were advocating, we're going to see Paul, in essence, say this. Listen, you want to be sure in your faith, in your salvation, and grow as a Christian? Don't go there. Go to Christ. You want to grow as a Christian? Don't go there. Go to Christ for salvation and growth. So let's get into this passage then, and we're going to see in this passage three R's that Paul wants us uh, to to warn us about, uh, of turning to instead of Christ. And the first R is religion and rules. Don't go there to religion and rules. And just a heads up, we're going to spend most of our time um, here this morning, so don't be panicking in 20 minutes' time if we're still on, on point one. Um, We see this first R here in in verses uh, 16 to 17. Let's uh, read those together. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regards to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ." Here we see straight up the religion and rules that these false teachers are trying to spread around Colossae. 
rules concerning what the Christian believers should be eating or drinking or, or what special days they should be marking out and maybe how they should be marking those days out. And given these rules mentioned, it, it seems likely that there's a Jewish background to this kind of teaching, right? There's the mention of the Sabbath, isn't there? But it's possible that they could have been contained in this some pagan rules as well. But whatever the case may be, here is, uh, here is what is clear from what Paul's saying and his strength of language here. He's saying these false teachers are coming in and saying something like this. It's great you have Christ, but now that you do have him, here's this little bit extra that you really need to do to be a strong, mature Christian, someone who is really sure of their salvation. And those little extras in this case, well, they're keeping these extra rules. Add a little religion to your life, these uh, teachers are saying, and then you'll really be flying as a Christian. And this kind of teaching can be really tempting, can't it? See, turning to religion and rules in many ways offers us an easier way, a more measurable, tangible way of saying, yes, I am saved. Yes, I'm growing as a Christian. As we consistently, positively keep rules and regulations and we day by day steer clear of other things, uh, don't do other things. See, it allows us to think do you know what? Really, I'm not that bad. I'm pretty good, aren't I? Just look at my life. I'm really getting it all together here. Just look at this checklist of all these things that I've done this past week. And as we begin to think like that, do you see there at the start of verse 16, there's often something else that follows along with this. And that is passing judgment on others. Others who aren't keeping the same rules that we're now keeping so well. Others who aren't as religious as we are. We say, I mean, just, just stop for a second and look at that person. Look what they're getting themselves into. Look what, how they're letting themselves down. Look what they're watching on TV. Or, or, or look what, uh, what they're drinking or eating. They're watching that TV program? Can you believe it? Do you know what music they're listening to? Do you know who they're hanging out with? Do you know what they do on a Sunday? Now, the specifics here may be a little bit different to the passage that we're in, but I really think the heart is very much the same for us today. This is something that we are all tempted to do as Christians, to set up rules and regulations that not only do we then judge ourselves by, and we feel good or bad about ourselves by them, but then also these rules in some ways allow us then to pass judgment on others. And often as we pass judgment on others, the aim there, isn't it, is to feel better about ourselves. Well, I'm not as bad as them. This kind of attitude reminds me of the parable of the uh, Pharisee and the tax collector. Do you remember it? Uh, uh, The Pharisee comes, uh, and this is the prayer that he said. He's the rule keeper, right? And here's his prayer. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. Look at me, I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. But this is not the good news that we have in Christ. That some, well, they're really worthy of saving. And any kind of thinking along the lines of this Pharisee is fatally flawed. 
because it fails to recognize the realities of each of our own hearts and the reality of what Jesus has done for us. See, these Old Testament commandments seemingly referred to there in verse 16 of what to eat and what to drink concerning festivals and Sabbath, they were never given to God's people so that they could then earn their way to heaven and so that they could feel good about themselves. No, instead, they firstly showed the people that none of them could actually ever earn their way to heaven, to earn their salvation. Because no one obeys God's laws perfectly. And then also, secondly, these laws showed them the best ways then for them to live in line with God's perfect character and his best plan for their lives. These are good things to do. And it's in this way then that Jesus is coming His life and his death and his resurrection changes all of this. Or or we should probably say fulfills all of this. Look there again at verse 17, how Paul puts it. These religious rules and all that they are, are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. These rules were never to be kept to earn our salvation or to feel secure in it. No, instead... They were a shadow that showed people, showed God's people that they needed the reality that was to come. A savior, someone who could come and completely save them, who could redeem them, who could pay the debt for their disobedience. And in Christ, that reality, that substance came. And in Christ, God made man, we also see even more clearly the other thing that the Old Testament laws kept pointing us to, God's character, what he's like. As we see Christ on earth, we see in him a clearer revelation even of what living lives pleasing to God looks like, living like Christ. For the Colossian Christians, thinking that keeping Old Testament laws, or any religious rules for that matter, as if that will earn them their salvation, or or guarantee salvation perhaps, or thinking that in keeping these external laws, there was this, this idea that they were growing, well, that could have been a fatal misstep for them. It would have been. And that's the reason that Paul says what he says here. He says, listen, don't go there. Go to Christ. Go to the one who these laws pointed to, the one who the laws pointed to the need for, and the one in whom we see the perfect fulfillment and living out of these laws. Now, uh, just quickly, I want to clarify something here in terms of as we go into the laws. There are a wide range of views held today amongst faithful, Bible-believing Christians on how we as Christians should think about the Old Testament laws, in particular, the Ten Commandments. Do some of them, like uh, the Sabbath, do they, well, do they remain completely binding for us? Or has our relationship been completely changed and transformed? And these are big questions, and they're ones that we have to grapple with as Christians. Uh, is, is Sunday the Sabbath? How should we live in light of what the Old Testament commandments, particularly the Ten Commandments, say? And I'd, I'd happily chat to, chat to people afterwards. There's a few books and articles I could point you to as we sort of grapple with that. But for now, I want to get back to the, what the heart is of what Paul's saying here. And he's saying, listen, in keeping these commandments, it, it isn't in keeping these commandments that you are saved. 
It is in Christ you are saved. It is in Christ you are saved. Do you remember what we saw last week? He has given us complete and final forgiveness. There is nothing that we can add to that, so why are we now trying to? There's this uh, really great kids' book uh, that came out a little while ago ago called His Grace is Enough. Uh, And I've been reading it with uh, my two daughters, Lydia Grace and Naomi, again just this past week. And I think it just sums up the message here really well, what we've been thinking about this morning. This is the repeated refrain that's in here. It says, His grace is enough. It's so big and so free. His grace is enough, both for you and for me. His grace is enough. It's so big and so free. His grace is enough, both for you and for me. That's what I pray that my children will come to know. And it's what we need to know again this morning. This is the gospel message that we have to declare. Even if it's something, sometimes it's hard to believe, God's grace through Christ really is enough for us. And we can rest in it. This is the starting point, and the point that we never, ever move on from as Christians. It's the truth we need to come back to every single day for assurance of our salvation and for growth then as a Christian as we respond to this message of grace. Jesus Christ and him alone has completely paid for my sin. I'm so undeserving, just as every single one of us is, but his grace is enough. It's enough for you and it's enough for me. And that means that here this morning at Great Vic, we don't have classes of Christians. The, the spiritual elite, which, which seems to be being implied in what's written about here in Colossians. Now here this morning, there is one class of Christian, and that is an undeserving sinner who has been saved by God's grace. And one of the beautiful things, I think, that comes out of this, as we think about this, that flows from Paul's teaching here, is that then this morning, we don't have to be afraid as Christians to show that we are weak, or we do fail, we do sin. See, that's what rule-keeping Christianity keeps us from doing, as we're always, aren't we, every time we come to church or see another Christian, we always have to put up that front, don't we? That face that says, I've got it sorted, I'm matching up the expectations that you expect of me and I expect of myself. But resting in Christ alone and being part of a community that does likewise, actually, it allows us to say, as one sinner speaking to another sinner, do you know what? I messed up this past week. And I'm really ashamed about it and I'm really sorry for it. And do you know, it allows the other sinner who hears that to say, Do you know what? I hear you, and I want to help you. First of all, let me tell you this and remind you of this. If you're trusting in Christ this morning, you are safe and secure and forgiven in him. No matter what you've done, his grace is enough. And then, let's together, as as sinners and as those who are seeking to honor the Lord now in response to what he's done for us, let's together talk about how we can go forward and live lives together that do honor the Lord more and more as a response to all that he's done for us. That's the kind of community that I want to be a part of. That's that's the kind of community we want to be here at Great Vic. I hope it's one that you want to be a part of too because it's a beautiful working out of the gospel.
We want this place to be a place where we together go back again and again to Christ. Not the keeping of rules, not to external religion and the judgment of others that so quickly comes with that. Let's together, as a church, rest and rejoice every single week as we meet in Christ and the incredible beauty of his grace towards us, undeserving sinners. Now, we've uh, spent, as I said already, a lot of time here. But just let me say one more thing then, too, uh, before we move on to Paul's second and third points. Because I guess the question then still possibly in some of our minds are, well, how should we think about the commands here? How should we think about the commands that the Bible does give us, how we should live? And no matter, I guess, where you come down on Old Testament commands and their enduring relevance, here here are two pointers, I think, hopefully, that will just get us started and thinking about these things. First, here is what the commands uh, that we see in the Bible, the commands here are never. They are never things that we keep to make God love us more, to make us more deserving of salvation. Now, our relationship with commands in the Bible is this. Look at what God, at what Christ has done for me. And now look at what he says I should do and how I can best live for him and honor and serve him. And so I want to do that out of thankfulness and gratitude towards him. And also, ultimately, so that he will get the glory because he is so worthy of it. And then, secondly, no matter what the commandment is that we have in view, or or the purely self-created rule that even we as Christians like to put on ourselves, right? We judge ourselves. Did I pray for 15 minutes this week, every day? Did I read two chapters of the Bible? Whatever it might be. Remember, it is never the external keeping of a commandment, even as good as a commandment can be, that is important, that's in view. We see that in in Jesus' words, don't we? When he was rebuking the religious leaders, right? They, They kept to the law again and again. They added some extra laws. But here's what he says, quoting Isaiah chapter 29. He says to these religious leaders, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. We see this all summed up, if you look with me now, to verses 20 and 22 in this passage as well, where again, Paul says, listen, You don't need to now go about your life in the slavery of just following these external human rules and commands on what you touch or what you eat, as if that's how you're judged, how you're going to grow. In fact, living your life by those rules, they risk putting you back under the condemnation and control again, right, of those the control of those evil spiritual forces, those elemental spirits, uh, spiritual forces that we talked about last week. But Paul says that isn't how it should be. Verse 20, you have died with Christ. You have died to those evil spiritual forces and to your former fleshly way of living, which ends up in your condemnation. So don't now go back to it. Live as those who are forgiven in Christ and those who are free in Christ. Because Christ is the substance Paul's saying, don't go chasing this shadow that you see back here when standing right in front of you is the reality. Christ, and he's so much greater than that shadow. 
See how the, the start of verse 22 puts it? All of these rules, do not handle, don't taste, don't touch, they're all referring to things that are going to perish. These rules have no lasting value in themselves. But true spiritual growth should be about something much, much more, something much longer lasting, and that is the change of our hearts and our lives to be more like Christ. Heather and I um, have been uh, recently watching a program called Masters of Flip. Now, um, it's basically this couple that go in and in Nashville and they buy an old rundown house. Right? And then they go in and they, they flip it, right? They, they turn it into this beautiful new house that, that they love keeping some of the old as well. But anyway, it's, it's a fascinating project that they undertake, and they, they make this great transformation. And just at the end of one of the, the recent programs, uh, the landscaper that they have, he's quite a character as well, um, he was out putting the finishing touches to the garden, right, out the front of this house, making it look great. He was, he was planting some little trees and some bushes and plants and stuff. And then he got out this little canister, and he started spraying the grass. Now, the grass was as dead as it comes, like brown. And apparently, he was using this biodegradable paint, this green grass paint, and he just was spraying over the top of it, completely over the top. And there it was at the end, completely lush, a beautiful house to walk into. But as I was thinking that, I was thinking, do you know what? That is the exact kind of thing that is going on here in this passage. That instead of seeking to honor God with our hearts, with the core, the roots of our lives, actually, by going about chasing after these, religion, these religious rules, we're trying to do this. We're trying to spray over something that is possibly dead and dying with just some kind of paint that in two or three weeks is going to completely disappear. Uh, maybe for a little while we can co- even convince other people, well, look at me. It's green. Like, it's, it's great, isn't it? And we maybe even might try and fool ourselves as we look at it. But the reality is, the most important thing is where are the roots and how is it growing? Sure, sometimes it can be true that having rules to follow, well, they can help us uh, in our spiritual growth. But those rules are never the big thing. So we don't get enslaved by them. Instead, we keep going back and back and back again to Christ and ask that he, by the Holy Spirit, would be changing something much deeper down, something much more important, our hearts, and helping us to grow in maturity and holiness. Right, we've said a lot there about this first false turning in seeking assurance of salvation and growth as Christians. But I think that's because, as I've been reflecting on it in this past week, I think it is something that all of us are tempted to do. Something tangible, right, that we can do that makes us feel like we're safe and feel like we're growing. But Paul says, just don't go there. Don't live your life on that. Because do you know what? You have Christ. You are full in Christ. You are forgiven and free in Christ. Keep going back to him. Uh, Secondly then, now as uh, as these second and third points will be a little bit shorter, I promise, Paul now turns his attention to a second thing to avoid, and that is physical restraint. He's saying, don't go to physical restraint, go to Christ for salvation and growth. And we're going to see this in verse 18, first of all, and then 23. Verse 18, if you look with me, uh, it says this, let no one 
disqualify you, insisting on asceticism. Uh, that's the key word here, asceticism. Uh, and then in verse 23, we see something similar. If you jump there with me, it says uh, that while rules on physical restraint might appear wise, there at the end, asceticism and severity to the body are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. It's, it's been an idea around for centuries and centuries, hasn't it? That our bodies, well, that's where all the bad things are. They, they, our bodies are the things that contain all our sin or our weaknesses. And simply what we have to do is we have to whip them into shape, right? Put them under our control so that we can master the sin that seems to come out. And that seems to be behind something of what the, the false teachers are saying here in Colossae. Not only are they keeping these religious rules so that they can look good, but they're also trying to keep and promote rules over how to treat the body so that they can cut off sin. In particular, a view there with that word asceticism in the original language is this idea of fasting. And then if we put that together then in verse 23, we're about this, that phrase, the severity to the body. I think it's really clear that this teaching in some ways, whatever it is, is just some kind of insistence on physical rules for us to follow. Some kind of physical hardship, probably. And the, the teaching here is that pretty much that is what you need to do to cut off sin from your life. You want to be a Christian? This is what you do. But that just isn't the case. At the core of these rules, in fact, as Paul says, these kind of rules have nothing to do, uh, have no value in and of themselves. Why? Because like we've just seen, it's all about the heart. We can't cut off sin through physical means. Remember what Jesus says, again, back in Mark's Gospel, chapter 7, the same chapter where he was speaking um, earlier to those religious leaders, he says, even sins like sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, right? Physical sins that we can see. He says, all these evils come from within. See, the problem isn't our bodies. It's our hearts. So Paul says, don't think that now by containing your body in some way you're going to fix your heart as well. No, instead, as we see sin in our lives, we need to go first and foremost back to Christ, as he's been saying all the way through this book, remembering that as we saw last week, he has really given us a new heart. He has changed our hearts. He has given us power over sin in himself as he's given us the Holy Spirit to live within us. Above all, when we see sin in our lives, we need to pray for a continued change of desire within us a change of desire so that we would increasingly live according to the new reality of who we truly are, that we are no longer of this world and living for the things of this world, but instead we are living for God. We belong to him, and we want to live according to his will for our lives. Now, here's the thing. It isn't impossible, right, that, that some kind of physical discipline or restraint could help us grow as Christians, Perhaps we could do something like fast and actively spend time as we're fasting uh, thinking, uh, okay, it is true, isn't it, that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. 
Or it could be good for us, couldn't it, to, to avoid alcohol or, or whatever it is that, uh, that we're, te- we're tempted to go to, or chocolate or whatever it might be. Or it could be that we need to physically avoid going into some kind of situation where we know we'll face temptation and we might well yield to it. But the thing is that if we then begin to live our lives at putting those rules first and foremost and judging ourselves by those kind of rules, well, we're going to soon run into problems. Notice there again that last phrase of verse 23. They are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. The false teachers were saying that by physical restraint, you'd be cutting off fleshly living. But actually, there's a real danger that in living like this, with these new rules, well, actually, there's a great danger, as we've already seen with the kind of legalism, that we're actually going to increase the indulgence of the flesh because we're going to increase our own pride, our own reputation, our own status our own standing amongst the Christian community, whatever it might be, that is the danger. One commentator reflecting on this describes the spiritual pride that often goes along with legalism and this kind of self-restraint. He says this, he says, it is one of the subtlest and most intractable of the works of the flesh. That is, it's the hardest to cut out. Pride. We cut out one, we replace it with another, maybe more serious. We're not, it's not of any value. On top of that, as appearing, as appearing holy through obeying these kind of rules becomes this higher priority, there is also, again, this move away from the gospel that we've already been thinking about, this, this idea that for each of us it becomes harder for us to actually admit we are still sinful. People who are still today in need of God's grace. Even if inside we know that's the case, the external pressure mounts, and there's this danger Uh, that we begin to believe our own lies. Lies that say, well, just look at me. Look what I've been able to master in my body. I really must not be that bad after all. Or the other risk, uh, even as we try to live by these kind of harsh rules, is that we fail in them. And then we begin to give up. We give up the fight. I just can't do this fasting, or whatever it might be. So maybe, well, maybe I'm not a Christian really after all. And this is why Paul is so strong here. He says, why are you submitting to these kinds of man-made rules and regulations? They're actually drawing you away from Christ. Christ, the one who fills you to the full. The one who gives you all you need. Why are you now turning the Christian life back into a record of how you're doing by how good or bad you've been? This is the truth. You are safe and secure in Christ. Turn to him and seek to honor and glorify him through what you're doing in your life. Don't seek to do things that do things and tick things off that really deep down end up only honoring and glorifying yourself. Thirdly and finally then, Paul says in this passage then that we're going to see don't go to mystical revelation for salvation and growth. Go to Christ. We see this uh, final part of this, uh, false, these false teachers uh, thinking here in verses 18 and 19, and then also, again, briefly in verse 23. See there in, in verse 18, if you look with me, Paul writes, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism, like we've just been thinking about, and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, 
puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head. For the false teachers, it seems like they are advocating that there is some kind of mystical revelation or experience that all Christian believers should be seeking after. In that experience or revelation, it seems like they are are either perhaps, I guess, involved in the worship of angels, or perhaps more likely, I think, here, they have been somehow caught up in the worship that the angels are giving to God. In this way, they are reaching into this higher realm, right? Higher realm of reality, of worship. And as they do that, they then seem to be, pure and simple, bragging about it, right? Sharing that, telling everyone else about it. Look what's been revealed to me. This is what I think also is in view there. If you look in that verse 23, there's that little phrase, self-made religion. See, this is, this is religion that they've added on. They've, they've added this to, to worship. And it would be an easy sell for them, wouldn't it? I guess, to say, do you know how I know that I'm a real Christian. I'm a mature Christian because, well, I've got this little bit extra. I'm in on what's really going on in the heavenly realms. I've experienced it. Oh, and, oh, I guess you haven't experienced that. Well, that's a bit concerning, isn't it? Maybe, well, are you a a Christian? Are you a mature Christian? That's, that's what they could be saying. Now, we don't know the details here, the specifics of what this experience or higher revelation of these, vi- of these visions is, but it's easy to see where we could be caught up in something similar. We'd be tempted to think similarly. See, life in many ways, as a Christian, it just continues on, doesn't it? It isn't all flashy and exciting. The day-to-day can be pretty normal. It can also be pretty tough at different times, if we're being honest. So if we hear about someone out there who has had this kind of experience, who's been caught up in this, some kind of vision, or, or they've something, this revelation, or we could even put it in the language that they've been moved in the spirit to really feel the presence of God and to hear him now speaking to them directly, and they've been extra revelation to them, well, it makes us think, hang on. Why do they have that and I don't? Does that mean, does that mean I'm not a Christian? Or maybe does that mean I, I'm a second-rate Christian of some kind? But Paul is saying here, this again just isn't the case. There is no higher revelation or experience that we must have to be Christians. We must simply have Christ. And we must simply cling on to Christ, even in the difficulties and trials and blandness of day-to-day living. But why is that enough? Why do we not need more? Because do you remember what we've seen about Christ all the way through in Colossians up to this point, if you've been with us? Do you remember we do not need a higher revelation than the Lord Jesus Christ? He is the image of the invisible God. He is in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And then last week we said, and you have been filled in him. This is who is living inside of you this morning. 
Listen, you'll hear people speaking about seeming higher experiences or revelations. And I do believe in some ways that, that God can draw near. You can feel a special closeness to God at particular times in your life. Or you can, you can particularly see, just with more clarity, the goodness and grace of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that can happen. But don't ever set your benchmark of your salvation or your growth based on these kind of extra out-of-body experiences almost. Why? Because if you are in Christ, you are lacking nothing. No matter what anyone else is going to tell you, you are lacking nothing in Christ. And second, the other reason why we we can leave that is because if someone is telling you something like this, They're sharing it with you. And they're sharing it in a way that makes it seem like, well, maybe you should go after this same experience that I've had. Well, I think uh, verses 18 and 19 show us probably something of what's going on in their mind. Do you see there? They are now someone who is puffed up. And rather than pursuing Christ, they're now living by their sensuous mind. Uh, They're living according to the desires of their flesh. Probably again, probably deep down, this idea of reputation. How good I am. This sinful pride that we're all prone to. Look at the condemnation in verse 19. It couldn't be much stronger in some ways. This kind of person is going seriously wrong because they are not holding fast to the head. That is Christ. They've let go. And that's the real problem because it is only by holding fast to the head, to holding fast to Christ, that the body, the church, that God's people are ever going to grow. Maybe it looks like those people are growing, but actually it's only in their own minds, puffing their minds up. It isn't growth from God. Growth from God can only come by fixing our eyes on Christ and holding fast to him. As we uh, think about this and as we come towards a conclusion here, I just want to look at there at the positive, though, of verse 19. Because it very much sums up, I think, what we want to be about here at Great Vic as God's people. What we're seeking to do every single week. And that is we are seeking to come worship the Lord and to listen to God's word. God's word, which is the, the chosen and normal manner that he reveals himself to us in. And we don't need anything added to that. And as we do that, we're ultimately seeking to go to God's word because we want to be pointed again and again and again and again to Christ. And that's what God's word does for us, isn't it? Every single week as we come around it, we are pointed to Christ. And it's our prayer then that in this way, God would nourish us and knit us together, as Paul puts it there. It's beautiful language, isn't it? It would knit us together, that we would grow individually and also corporately with a growth that's from God, not from our own personal revelations or whatever it might be. It is only by together holding fast to Christ, fixing our eyes on him, dwelling on and thinking about our fullness in him and all that he's done for us, that we are going to be a united church here at Great Vic. Not a church like we see here that that maybe is going around passing judgment on others pushing others to live according to our own little rules and regulations, or or encouraging others to, to seek out some kind of higher revelation. No, as a church and as individuals here, let's time and time again, every single day, go to Christ. 
put our roots deep into him. Draw on his nourishment for us. Trusting in him alone, as we were thinking about at the beginning, trusting Christ alone for assurance of our salvation. And knowing that as we look to him, as we put our roots into him, he will grant us growth and maturity as we become more like him as well. Let's pray together for God's help to do that as we close. Our Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for this book of Colossians that has time and time again shown us the glory of Christ, what he has done for us. And thank you for this reminder here in your word as well of the dangers that we might face, of the other places that we might look to go to so that we can know your, your salvation, know the salvation that you have granted to us or, or grow Lord, thank you for the clarity that Paul has put before us, that those things are of no value. We come to Christ. Lord, please help us as a church here to every single week live this out, to live out the truth that we are all undeserving sinners who have received your grace. And help us to encourage and support each other by continually pointing each other to those truths that we've been thinking about, that Christ is enough. And as we fix our eyes on Christ, not on these other things, Lord, please would you grant us an assurance, a reminder that we really are saved, that your grace is enough. And please would you according to your will and according to to Christ, Lord, and as we live more for him, Lord, please would you make us more like the Lord Jesus Christ in our day-to-day lives, all ultimately pointing to his glory and his honor. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're going to uh, close by singing uh, this song, Yet Not I but through Christ in me. And I think it just so helpfully sums up all that we've been thinking about there, right? It is not us. We look to Christ. Christ, what he has given to us. So let's uh, stand as the musicians begin to play and sing this final song together.
what a great hope we have, yet not I, but through Christ in me. The grace, now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us.